The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost. Grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. And he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you this evening? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And you? Just the same, Father. Good to see you. Yes, you too. Father, I know you have a lot of uh, prayer requests to begin the program tonight. Well, we have a plethora of prayer requests. Of course, everyone on the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list uh, needs our prayers, but in particular, I, I ask you to pray for two uh, dear souls who just passed away. Pray for the repose of the soul of Richard Rentschler, who just died yesterday, a longtime parishioner here, very fine man, and uh, he missed, uh, but uh, he died for, well fortified with the sacraments of the Church, thank goodness. And also Les Pugh, uh, Les uh, died of a heart attack, as you know, a few days ago in Texas, and I'll be flying down there tomorrow to offer a funeral mass for him. So please keep Les uh, and his wife, Hetty, in your prayers. Um, I also request your prayers for, continued prayers for Paul Riley, uh, Dr. David Hoprichter, and a uh, request that just came in from uh, Pat Tootie. Uh, Jim, a Marine, they say former Marines, but once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine, I understand, so. Um, and had to take his wife, Pat, to the hospital. She's being operated on tomorrow, kind of on an emergency basis, so. Uh, please uh, keep Pat Tootie in your prayers, and her husband, Jim. And uh, there are so many, many others, it's impossible to name all, but... Uh, I do uh, commend these and all of those in your prayers. If you just pray for the intentions uh, that have been committed to the priests, that will cover a lot of ground right there. Our, our Lord knows exactly who they are. Uh, thank you, Father. That's, uh, we have some fewer uh, questions that have come in from our website, from our email address, um, some uh, that we really wanted to get to tonight. Uh, the first one from a very faithful uh, viewer who says that, uh, or he asks, Father, our Lord tells us to befriend the sinner, but how do we, be, how do we befriend a sinner and not uh, follow their bad example? He says, I recently started a new job and have a co-worker who is very rough around the edges. He has a bad mouth and discusses various inappropriate things all day. I do like this person, and deep down he's very nice. I've never laughed at or shown approval of the bad things he talks about. Uh, the only time I had to, I told him to stop was when he was talking to me about impure things. But Father, do you have any advice on how to remain unscathed by this person's bad example 
while doing as our Lord said and befriending the sinner. Uh, well, you're right to uh, be concerned about that. I would tell our, our, our writer that he has every reason to be concerned about having the influence go the wrong way. Um, you know, Alexander Pope expressed it very well uh, 400 years ago uh, when his, what was it, his Elegy on Man, I think it was, said, Vice is a monster so frightful of mean, that's face, as to be hated needs but be seen, yet seen too oft familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. And uh, our writer seems to realize that there is a danger of going from enduring uh, this offensive behavior to having a certain sympathy with it, because you like this person, because he's a nice guy. Right? Um, and then finally, just embracing it, because it can't be that bad, right? Um, I guess my question would be, you know, he says he's a really nice guy and so on, but he has a bad mouth and discusses inappropriate things. He says he stops him when he talks about impure things, okay? Does he distinguish inappropriate things from the impure things? I don't know. Um, if he's talking about inappropriate things, what, what is he referring to other than the things that are impure that you're, you're stopping him from talking about? And um, I just, I mean, it's not, it's not out of the question for someone to be likable, even though he has kind of a foul mouth, just a bad habit of foul mouth. Um, you've got a foul mind. But the problem is, we have to bear in mind that the foulness in his mouth and in his mind is very offensive to God. So even though this person's personality uh, underneath all of that uh, might be agreeable and in some way amusing or whatever, um, what's coming out of his mouth and it's running through his mind is very, very offensive to God. We can't let ourselves forget that. Now you say to befriend the sinner, but we have to love the sinner, not just befriend him. There's a difference, you know, <clears throat> because when you say I befriend the sinner, that has to do along the lines with liking somebody. But our Lord doesn't say we have to like anybody. I don't have to find them pleasing to ourselves and enjoy their company. Our Lord says we have to love our neighbor and our enemies, even our enemies. And loving them means we want their good, uh, whether we particularly like them or not. I mean, let's face it, there are times when husbands and wives who love each other don't necessarily like each other. There are times when siblings the same and... and uh, friends of any nature, you know, there are times where they don't get along, but they, do, they care about each other, really, and they have a certain love for each other. Well, our Lord wants us to have a supernatural love for everyone. Uh, he gave us the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan, uh, the, 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 uh, the Samaritan who stopped to take care of uh, one of his enemies, a fallen Jew who was beaten and left for dead, or left for dying, anyway. And uh, our Lord calls that being his neighbor, okay? Um, but uh, we, we, you know, when it comes to a matter of liking someone, it's often a matter of personality, it's a matter of personal taste, it's a matter of uh, temperament. We find some people, uh, shall we say, more compatible with our own 
temperament and uh, outlook and so on. And, um, but, you know, this doesn't mean that we actually, because we find their company agreeable and pleasant, doesn't mean that we have any love for them. Because if we did, we'd be looking out for their good. I mean, that's the very neat meaning of love. Love, love really is a matter of benevolencia, well-wishing toward another person and wanting what is truly for their good. Now, this writer obviously does because uh, he is trying to do what is for the good of this individual. He's stopping him from talking about impure things. And so it's clear that the writer of this t message here cares about this individual and wants to bring him along in the direction of faith and hope and charity. In other words, wants him to save his soul. And so our friend here wants to befriend this, this other gentleman because he wants to be a good influence on him and ultimately and, you know, encourage him to do the things necessary to be saved. Believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, follow our Lord Jesus Christ, be faithful to the service of our Lord Jesus Christ, all of those things. And so I can see the writer wants that. But he's also concerned, what about the influence going the other way? And that's what he's concerned about. The fact that he's concerned about is a good first step. But he's got to be careful and watch for that. He's got to be careful and watch to see if the influence is going the other way. He's got to be careful if he's beginning to excuse his friend's uh, inappropriate speech. He's got to be uh, on, the, on guard against finding himself being more and more tolerant of uh, the things that his friend's doing and saying that are simply offensive to God. He finds himself beginning to make excuses, beginning to be less offended by it, and more tolerant of it, then it is having a very bad effect on him. And that's where he's got to draw away and, uh, and uh, not necessarily terminate the friendship, but he's just uh, realize, he's realizing that rather than helping his friend, his friend is hurting him. And uh, he's, he, his friend represents more of a danger to him than he represents a, a rescuer for his, for his friend. Um, obviously, he should pray for his friend every single day. And uh, he should ask our Lord, our Blessed Mother, St. Joseph, uh, to uh, uh, help our Lord, of course, as his Lord and Savior, and as his God, Saint, the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph, as saints in heaven who can intercede for their friend. Um, but he should think about actually taking a more active, I guess what I'm getting at is, he should not just try to be friends with the guy. Yeah. He should not just leave it at that level. I mean, he should actually bring up the question about whether the gentleman is baptized or not, whether he has any faith or not. Um, if he is baptized, you know, question of if he's validly baptized, um, maybe, um, some sacramentals, you know, could be uh, of interest to this gentleman. Uh, maybe a catechism or something. In other words, he shouldn't just leave it lie there. He should actually try to um, breach, uh, broach the subject, broach the subject of faith with this young man. I, I assume it's him. I, I don't know. Um, 
and see what graces are at work there. Um, if he introduces the subject and the friend immediately stops it, shuts it down, then he knows that at this moment my real objective is blocked. Right? He's resisting this and I don't want to just be his friend. Okay. Uh, um, I have to care about him more than just going along to get along. So he should definitely test the waters there to see if there's any openness to God's grace. Okay. All right. Thank you, Father. That's a good uh, practical question. I think we've all encountered situations like that. Our next question is more, um, more theological. Father, uh, a viewer uh, wrote in with, uh, I believe, somewhat Protestant arguments uh, here against the uh, Catholic Church and the baptism of infants. Uh, so this um, argument goes as follows. A conversion to Christ consists of, of three steps, uh, belief, repentance, and baptism. As the Bible says, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And, uh, and do penance and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Thus, one must have faith and a conversion of life before being baptized. These steps don't make sense in any other order. Thus, the Catholic Church has it backward when she baptizes infants. How can an infant be said to have faith, and what do they have to repent of? Did you answer that <clears throat> argument, Father? Well, uh, the gentleman here has brought up a good question. You know, a series of belief, repentance, and baptism. Okay. And it's a fact when somebody comes, uh, a would be convert comes to our door and says he or she wants to learn what the Catholic faith is so that they can actually enter the church. Well, they're not in the church yet. They might not have been baptized anything yet. They want to be received into the church, though. So they already must have at least the beginnings of faith to even come to the door and say, I want to be a Catholic, teach me how. <clears throat> so even though you're teaching them the faith, they already implicitly have told you, I believe the Catholic faith as such, I need to know what those teachings are. So, um, so uh, there has to be a certain amount of, uh, of faith for the person to even propose the idea, yes, I want to be received into the church and I want to be want to be baptized. And that, uh, that must also be accompanied with a certain love for our Lord because the motivation to do what is pleasing to God must come, must come really from, from loving God. That's what it's supposed to come from. Um, a certain love for God. So uh, together with having faith, the beginnings of faith anyway, the, uh, the individual has to be motivated to take the steps necessary, take the time to learn, make the effort to learn what the faith teaches. And um, we expect from all practical purposes that, that that involves there is at least a certain devotion on the part of the individual who's converting. You want to know and to love and to serve God, which requires at least the beginnings of charity, right? Uh, that always involves repentance. The person who comes to you and says, I want to be baptized, I want my sins forgiven, and, uh, you know, you think, well, there's some contrition for sin there. So when this person says, it begins with belief, then goes to repentance, and finally, 
they lead to baptism, it's true. And if you read the Council of Trent, the Catechism of the Council of Trent about the baptism of adults, it's exactly what it says. It says that the church is not in a great hurry to baptize adults who present themselves to want to be Catholics. Uh, when babies are born, the church is in, is in a hurry, you might say, is, considers the timely baptism to be a priority. With adults, uh, the Catechism of the Council of Trent says, it's not that case, we need to give the adult time to determine whether or not <clears throat> he really will persevere. We need to give him time to learn what the faith teaches. And that might take months or a year. Uh, in the old days, <clears throat> catechumens might be catechumens for several years before they were baptized. And one can see why. You have to have that firm resolve at a time when martyrdom is not only uh, possible, but even likely. You know, you have to be sure that they are sure of the step they're taking in being baptized. So the church herself has given us the example from its earliest years. She doesn't rush to baptize adults because they've got work to do in preparing for that baptism. But the Catechism of the Council says, says if an adult catechumen who is preparing for baptism uh, should die, and he had not been baptized, but it was not through any fault of his own, because he was doing everything he, he should have been doing to prepare for baptism, then the church has the confidence that, and the belief that uh, the, the individual's intent to be baptized and his uh, repentance for his sins would avail him unto grace and justification. So um, this is the teaching of the church itself now. So again, we see here belief, repentance, and baptism again. They are lined up exactly as they are stated here. But the person then goes on and says, thus one must have faith and a conversion of life before being baptized. But these steps don't make sense in any other order. So he then applies it to infants. He says, the Catholic Church has it backward when she baptizes infants. How can an infant be said to have faith? And what do the infants have to repent of? Well, in the first, let's, let's take that second question, or the, the last question first. Infants have original sin. They are conceived with original sin. St. Augustine makes it very clear, our human race is a fallen race, and when we are conceived, our souls actually are created, and they are created in that state that Adam left us, that our first father, parents left us. It's like a genetic, spiritual, crippling disease, as it were, and um, <clears throat> that we inherit from our first parents. They actually use the word inherit. That's the nature we inherit from our first parents, a fallen nature. Now, can infants repent of it? Well, adults can, of course, but infants uh, have human souls, so they are created in the image of God insofar as they have spiritual souls, immortal souls, and they, those humans, immortal souls, because they are in the image of God, have the power of intelligence and will to know what is true and love what is good. But that in 
intellect and that will need the ability to form concepts and have ideas, and that comes with the development of the brain and the nervous system and uh, their experience in this world. Uh, St. Thomas says, he used the expression, we are a tabula rasa, we are a blank slate or blank tablet uh, until our experiences in this world and, and uh, our development is such that we can begin to think. <coughs> Uh, eventually use, using the re, a rage of reason, and so on. Now, um, a child has a human soul. A child is created in the image of God. A child does have the powers of the soul, of intellect and will, but the, they are latent within the child, because the child cannot think yet. Uh, <clears throat> the soul itself has uh, not been, as it were, informed with knowledge, and, um, and in particular, knowledge of love or love of God. But the, the child has the ability to know and the ability to love in the soul. So uh, the Catholic Church teaches that when a child is baptized, that the Holy Ghost actually does enter the soul of that child. And uh, that child becomes not only a child of mere mortal, sinful human beings, but now has a second birth, and that second birth is an adoption by God. That now the child is an adopted child of God. And uh, that child has an inheritance of everlasting life. The child does not yet have a personal faith. But God allowed Adam and Eve, our first parents, to answer for us long before we could answer for ourselves, before we even existed. Our first parents made decisions that have a very, very profound effect on our existence right now. And so, just as God allowed our first parents, Adam and Eve, to make decisions that affected and influenced us all, again, centuries and centuries and centuries before we came into existence, so God can allow and does allow the faith of God parents to answer for us. He allows their faith to stand for us. It is a kind of pledge for the godparents and their parents who are uh, actually not arranged for the baptism and designate the godparents that um, their faith will be ours, that they will teach us and raise us in the faith, that they will uh, inform the faith, the virtue of faith that God placed there by grace when we are baptized. The Catholic Church has a very spiritual view of things. There are some, in a, in a very worldly sense, who look in a superficial way and say, well, you know, that person uh, doesn't actually have faith because they can't make an act of intelligence or an act of the will. They can't make an act to believe. But the Catholic Church sees that the soul is entirely in God's hands, in God's care. And he gives invisible graces to that soul. Yes, even the graces of the soul of a child. And he can instill the virtues of faith and hope and charity, even in the soul of an infant. And those virtues may not be active yet, and they may uh, be latent, but they are there. And as the child grows and develops and learns, what that child learns is actually already 
hearkening to a faith, a virtue of faith in his soul uh, that is already there before he even has the knowledge. And this is the, the church's confidence. It is the power of Christ at work in the human soul. Now, again, you know, we talked last uh, week about uh, the sanctifying grace and actual grace. Uh, I mentioned, I think, the mystery of iniquity. And the Bible mentions the mystery, mystery of iniquity. But there is also the mystery of grace, and that is how God's grace works. It is a mystery because it is essentially something supernatural. But as we read through the sacred scripture, we find that God does things, can do things invisibly in the soul, and actually move the soul by grace, that by grace in certain directions, long before the individual is even aware that anything is happening to him. That God's grace is very subtle and very powerful. And we, when we look at the souls of these infants, who by virtue of the faith of parents are brought to the baptismal font, given godparents who uh, kind of pledge their faith for that child, um, there's no doubt God can use their faith uh, to answer for the child on the day of their baptism and uh, can, can instill in that child's soul the virtues that the child needs to be saved. Um, if I may just say one more thing about that. Again, sanctifying grace is what is necessary in every soul to be saved, that is to come to eternal life. <coughs> Without that special grace from God, making the soul holy and pleasing to God, there is no salvation, because sanctifying grace is the very divine life in the soul, the sharing of the divine life. And... Uh, and actually, the merits of Jesus Christ are applied to that soul, making the soul holy and pleasing to God. Without that, there can be no salvation. But that, that grace has to be in the soul of a child, too. Even of a newborn baby. It has to be in the soul of a newborn baby for that baby to be saved. And if, if we are saying that in order to have that divine life in the soul, that child needs to survive long enough then to learn and to the point of making an actual act of faith in the merits of Jesus Christ crucified to justify and save the soul, that soul that is leaving out of salvation, excluding from salvation all of those children who don't live long enough to produce an act of uh, faith on their own. That's not what the church believes. The church does not believe that these children are lost. The church believes that baptism is necessary, as Christ said, but that God himself supplies what is wanting, even in the soul of a little child. And he's found a way to do that by accepting the faith of the godparents answering for the child at the time of the baptism. And the child can actually and does have sanctifying grace in that soul and the virtues of faith, hope, and charity, even latent, but truly there, even from the earliest infancy when the child is baptized. And that's the church's teaching. 
And isn't that a nice um, kind of mirror image? Father, I think St. Augustine says um, something about that, about how, um, you know, uh, if we're talking about original sin, how these um, infants come into the world, I mean, essentially having sin through another, they can also have, have faith through another. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of a nice mirror mm -hmm. uh, image uh, there. But, it is, and it's all by the divine God's providence, right? God provides. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So. Okay. Um, okay, another email. Uh, Father Vivek Ramaswamy is from Cincinnati and running for president. He has very positive-sounding interviews, but he is Hindu. So can Father Jenkins discuss whether it is uh, acceptable to vote for a pagan? Well, uh, for a Catholic... One, one would have to have a very, very serious, serious reason to cast such a vote. Um, personally, I would say no. Okay, I, I'm not judging uh, Mr. Ramaswamy. I don't judge him. But Hinduism is not the true faith. It is greatly at variance with the traditional Catholic faith that I hold, and any any form of real Christianity with the Blessed Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And it, it is difficult to see how, I, I have difficulty seeing how someone who uh, has a Hindu belief could actually subscribe to the Declaration of Independence uh, and the Constitution. Um, I don't know how one could swear to the Hindu gods an actual oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States of America. I just don't see how that could possibly be. And uh, I don't see how one could understand God in the sense that the Founding Fathers did, even though, you know, they weren't Catholic. Uh, they still retained a certain sense of, quote, nature is God, right? The, the God, the Creator and the natural law who endowed us with the uh, rights of right life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and so on. And uh, I don't see how one could found those beliefs in, in uh, Hinduism any more than I see how one could found those beliefs in Islam. Um, so, again, I, I, I don't see how it's even possible theoretically or hypothetically to expect someone to do that and to entrust someone uh, with the responsibility to do it and then to keep it, follow through on it. I don't know what else to say about it, I guess. But there's no uh, um, official church teaching on the matter, anything that says we're not allowed to vote for someone like that? Um, I don't know that there is a, an actual statement by the church that it is absolutely forbidden to vote for a non-Christian or to vote for a non-Catholic. You know, I don't know that it was ever even a consideration. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I mean, just looking at the very terms of our government and the philosophical and, to whatever extent, theological foundations there. Yeah. Uh, I just don't see those philosophical or theological foundations present in Hinduism yeah. or in uh, 
or in uh, Islam. Islam or you know Taoism or Buddhism or they just do not have the same philosophical or or theological foundations at all. Um, so even taking an oath of office, I, I you know I, I would have to really question. Well, what exactly do you mean by that? For exactly, I mean Hinduism uh, teaches there are ten thousand gods and goddesses, or uh, Shiva to Kali, right? <laughs> and uh, what what exactly are you taking oath to? You know, and what value does it have? What force does it have? You know, what consequences would there be uh, for taking? A false oath, or taking a sincere oath, but not considering it to be binding somewhere down the road. You can. Um, uh, what What does it mean? Even I'd, I'd have to ask them. What do you mean by this when you say these words? Um, but uh, you know, again, I mean, if 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 their their understanding uh, of the oath is in terms of uh, uh, Hindu. Hindu belief or Muslim belief or whatever, I just don't see how that actually even applies, personally. So, um, I, I, you know, it's hard enough to find somebody who is a, a, says he's a Christian, to actually follow honestly Christian principles and be and find himself held to that, right, and not compromise. Um, now, you know, I don't know the background of this Vivek Ramaswamy in terms of his politics. Uh, I hear things that he has supporters who are not really um, uh, genuine, red-blooded American conservative types, you know, stand for American values, so-called, and American principles. Uh, you know, political principles and, and social principles. Uh, I don't know. I don't know who his uh, backers are who, who are funding him. Uh, I don't know exactly what he's voted for and against in his record. Uh, insofar as he's been a quote-unquote public servant, um, it would be interesting. For, I'd like to find out, actually. Um, he certainly uh, says some good things, you know, in themselves. That sound, they sound good. I've heard uh, that of those who debated in the Republican debate, that he probably was considered the the leader when it was done. Uh, I've heard mixed reviews on DeSantis and others. But uh, again, just the fact that somebody says the right things is far from a guarantee that he will hold true to them or that he even believes them these days, okay? So uh, one has to look for as much positive proof as possible, you know, to, uh, to verify that the individual, number one, is speaking out of true conviction, and uh, number two, can be trusted to hold firmly to those convictions. I don't necessarily have those, that, that assurance in this case. So. Yeah. Um, so. Okay. There's another uh, another question in the same email. Current events uh, from recently. Uh, she says it was on the news uh, that the singer, the Irish singer Sinead O'Connor, had died. Uh, that news reminded this viewer. Uh, she says if her information is correct, that uh, 
Sinead O'Connor, she was ordained a priest by Archbishop Took. Have you heard that, Father? Oh, yeah. Well, not by Archbishop Took himself. She's like a third or fourth generation Took, Tooker. Um, but she was, quote-unquote, ordained for a pretty good sum uh, by uh, one of the Took, one of the thousands of Took bishops that came from Took's hands. Actually, she traces... Uh, that lineage, I mean, there's no valid ordination here, obviously. Uh, it's impossible. But the fact that a, a Took offspring would would do this is, is, is not entirely shocking, right? Considering the, uh, the antics of the Took bishops, right? Um, they're just not Catholic, uh, by and large. But uh, the... Um, uh, I understand that she, that, that she can trace her, her origins back to uh, the Palmarian Church, okay? Uh, one of the early, early works it took was to uh, ordain and consecrate some men at Palmar to Troya back, oh, about the year 1970 or so. And, uh, of course, they in terms have ordained, consecrated, ordained, consecrated, generation after generation, from teenage boys from Ireland to married men to people you know, who are, uh, let's say, uh, homosexuals and so on. It just goes on and on and on, uh, like a virus spreading. And, uh, and lo and behold, it reached Sinead O'Connor. Right? Uh, but uh, especially she was, quote-unquote, ordained by a man named Michael Cox uh, that... Rivaz is in her lineage going back to the Palmarian church. So, um, yeah, it's a travesty. It's a scandal. Um, but it's, it's absolutely null and void. And if the question is, well, uh, why would anybody want anything to do with the Took bishops seeing this kind of scandal uh, actually not just arising as an exception, but certainly as the norm among the Took bishops, then I would say, yes, that's a fair question. Why would anybody want to, in any way, to be associated or affiliated with that? Mm -hmm. yeah. We pray for his soul. I understand that she, after she was, quote-unquote, ordained by this uh, uh, Took bishop, quote-unquote, that she then became a Muslim, Right, but I'm told that she said she still believed in Jesus Christ, but she also believed in the Talmud and believed in I don't know what else, you know. So uh, she clearly did not have faith as we know it. Okay, yeah. so wow. no question about it. Okay, um, Father, if you were said, uh, I was hoping to ask Father if he thinks it's prudent or respectful to ask one's local parish priest if they could speak of the cross more or if they could give general adult catechism classes or lectures about the faith so as to better inform. He says, I feel like the faithful would benefit from being taught about the cross and how to daily accept things that are against our own inclinations. Uh, he says, Father, should I just pray for the faithful and pray for the priest to be inspired? Would you recommend? Mm -hmm. uh, well, Tom, yes, if I can just put a footnote on what I just said. I, said uh, I think I said pray for the, her soul. That might make people think, wait, wait a minute, look what you said she did, you know. So now you're not going to pray that she's saved. Well, when I say that, I mean, 
if you pray now, it's possible that God could actually provide the graces for her repentance, her conversion and her repentance at the end. Now, there are those who say that's not true. And uh, I would say, well, they, they might be right, you know, uh, praying retroactively for someone's conversion. Um, but um, in any case, uh, I realize it's problematic. That's why, for example, if you were to ask me to offer Mass for the salvation of the soul of someone who died as a Lutheran, I would offer the Mass for your intention, but I wouldn't announce it. I wouldn't announce that intention because I wouldn't want to send people the message that, yes, you can die a Lutheran and be saved as a, as a Lutheran. And so I'm offering a Mass for the person because I'm, I'm essentially saying that, well, they died a Lutheran, but they can still be saved, uh, Lutheran or not. Whereas the Church says, I can offer a Mass for that person, and I can offer a Mass for his conversion and repentance. But I shouldn't announce it because I might give people the impression that I'm saying that I'm just offering a Mass for his salvation even without that conversion and repentance. Understand? Mm -hmm. So I could not make a public statement about I'm offering this Mass for this, uh, you know, for this man to be in heaven now. Yep. Um, um, but the Church allow, would allow me to offer Mass for that repentance and conversion of that man who had, who had died. So it's kind of interesting the uh, way it is. Uh, but anyway, with regard to this, uh, yes, it certainly is uh, a good idea for the Catholic people to register with their parish priest, the traditional priest, that they want to learn more about the faith and to ask him to uh, speak more, to speak of the cross, definitely, from the pulpit, but uh, also to have uh, lessons. If the priest knew that people would be there for lessons, the priest would certainly be there to give them. Uh, if he knew that the interest was there, he would certainly meet that interest and give whatever he could of his time and effort to provide that for them. In, in fact, St. Pius X, in 1906 or 1905, uh, even said that parish priests should give an hour of instruction in the catechism to the adults, to the adults of the parish uh, every Sunday, uh, because the sermon is not enough. And uh, that I, I don't know where that has been done. It, it, it must have been done at some time somewhere, but I don't know that it was ever done here in the United States of America. Uh, that would be a wonderful thing. I think every, every traditional priest would be happy to do that, if he were capable of it, if he were able to, to give that time. Um, but, you know, all too often, sad to say, our people complain about a sermon going on for 20 minutes. They say this is excessive, let alone coming for an hour's instruction outside of Mass. But, you know, this is kind of the lukewarmness that you have there. Um, but... I can guarantee if you make your parish priest aware uh, that you want to learn more about the faith and uh, there are others with you who want to learn it, I guarantee you he'll say, well, get them together and I'll meet you here and uh, I'll, I'll give the time and we will do that. We'll give a lecture on the, on the faith. I myself have wanted so much actually to give special instructions on the Mass itself not only to our students, but to the adults, 
Um, but again, you know, it's, it's difficult to find those who really want to learn more about the spiritual life such that they will persevere. For a time, they carry on, but in time, they kind of are like the, uh, the, uh, the, the seed that sprouts and grows up among the thorns and gets choked off, you know. So, uh, anyway, but we'll see. Uh, but I do recommend that person, if that person has a zeal to learn more about the faith, by all means, tell their parish priest. They want to. Mm -hmm. They want to learn. Okay. We had a couple more questions, Father. I don't know if you wanted to um, get into this tonight or if you wanted to. Well, let's uh, see if we can answer them quickly here. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Um, this is a, uh, again, another theological uh, type question about the Blessed Trinity of the Athanasian Creed. A few had several questions about uh, such. And uh, he mentions um, a talk at the recent men's retreat uh, you gave this past summer, and uh, which is available on our, our website. He uh, listened through that, and he said um, in that talk you were speaking about the prayers at Mass, and you mentioned that in the Credo it states that there is one God, but the Father and the Son are different persons precisely because the Father has no origin, but the Son does. The Son originates in the Father and from the Father. He says, I was looking at the Athanasian Creed, which at times echoes the explanation given by Father Jenkins, and at other times seems to be a contradiction. It states in the Creed that the three persons are all God, all equal. It further states that the three persons are not three eternals, but one eternal. It goes on to say that they are not three uncreated, but one created. But further in the Creed, it says that the Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made, nor created, but begotten. The second part of the Creed appears to contradict this first section, when it speaks of the Son being created, but the first section gives the opposite view that the Son was not created. Uh, also, if they are eternal or co-eternal, how can the Son be created? Then the Son is not created. And the Athanasian Creed never says okay. that the Son is created. I think what the gentleman is doing is he's misinterpreting something. Uh, perhaps if he read it in Latin, it would be more clear. The trans translations always are not quite as clear as the original. But I, I just say that the Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. And that is true. But he seems to be misunderstanding that they are not three uncreated, but one uncreated. And I'm wondering if he's trying, if he's interpreting that to mean the Father, one uncreated is the Father, who is the one uncreated, and the Son therefore is created. I don't know, I don't know where else in that statement he could, he could see the, the contradiction, unless he's interpreting it that way. But the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one God, uncreated. In other words, they are three divine persons in or of one divine being, one and the same divine being, and that one and the same divine being is not created. <clears throat> so there's no contradiction, and I, I'm having, I have a hard time understanding as reading where he sees the contradiction, because it's clear that it's due to a misinterpretation on his part. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the fact is, the Son is not created. The Father exists of Himself. He has no origin. Uh, he proceeds from no one. He exists in all eternity, 
and uh, but he knows and loves infinitely, and his infinite knowledge begets his son, his perfect image. And the love between the father and the begotten, the unbegotten father, and the begotten son, then actually breathes forth the third divine person, the Holy Ghost. The Son proceeds from the Father, and the Holy Ghost proceeds from the love between the Father and the Son. And this happens from all eternity. And there is no creation involved here. There are what the, what the Church calls processions. And this procession it happens as long as God is God, which is ever, forever, in eternity. And there's no beginning and no end to it. It's simply who God is, as in I am who am, existing in himself, just uh, without beginning and without end. So, um, but the Athanasian Creed makes that very clear. So I I'd like him to explain where he sees the contradiction because I don't, see it. Mm -hmm. I'm just guessing at what he is interpreting or misinterpreting yeah. that gives rise to a contradiction mm -hmm. here. I, but there was a follow-up? There that was right? a follow-up question, and I think, <coughs> um, uh, is, is it true in any sense, Father, to say that the Son has an origin? Yes, the Father, the Son originates the Father. I think that might be where the confusion was coming. I think um, saying that the Son originates with the Father, in his mind at least, implied some kind of creation. No, but perhaps. the creed, the Athanasian Creed says he was not created, he was begotten okay. so he of was the born. Father. Begotten okay. of the Father. He was begotten and created, okay. From all eternity. Okay. By the Father's self-knowledge, uh, he is the, uh, the personal, <laughs> you might say, personal, uh, that sense of the word, um, the self-knowledge of the Father as a son begotten by the Father. Okay. I think that about sums it up, Father, that the father, if I just read the follow-up question, it was a lot shorter. He said, if the son has an origin, does that mean he was created? Or if the son has an origin and he was created, that would contradict the Athanasian Creed, of course. He says, if the son sure. has an origin, as Father Jenkins stated, in which the word begotten seems to suggest, could he still be eternal and have a beginning at the same time? No, he could not have a beginning any more than the Father had a beginning. Because as long as God is, his Father, as long as God is, he is Son, right? Mm -hmm. And there's no beginning to that. It's from all eternity, right? right? Okay. So... Um, one cannot say that he can be eternal and have a beginning at the same time. Um, God the Son became man in time, okay? And the humanity of the Son of God did have a beginning in time, in this world, in this creation. But his being the Son of God, eternity had no beginning whatsoever. Because as long as God is God, He is Father and is Son and is Holy Ghost, those processions follow from Him, necessarily. Um, so,
So, uh, look, is it mysterious? Well, yes. <laughs> but any true religion has to have mysteries because it's about a supernatural realities. Uh, if a religion does not have mysteries, it can't be, it can't be true about anything supernatural. Yeah. Because uh, if it's within the realm of human understanding, then it's something uh, of this world, not, not of the next, not something divine. But any religion that is truly about, about God, revealed by God, about himself, is necessarily going to have to contain mysteries that are beyond our powers of comprehension. And we find those in Christianity. Uh, because this is a religion revealed to us by God. It's not something we just devised for ourselves. Um, so, in any, way, in any case, Tom, I, I reiterate the need for prayers uh, for all these good souls, please. And uh, I uh, just point out Archbishop Vigano continues to speak very boldly about the situation prevailing in the new church with its synod and so on. And just recently in the bulletin, I had a, uh, an entry about what Francis believes about God. You know, we talk about what Francis says about this, what Francis says about this. The other thing, but it is very interesting to, to see what Francis actually has to say about God as he, Francis, believes God to be. And when you put it all together, what Francis is saying, one of his favorite expressions is uh, the God of surprises, <laughs> the spirit of surprises, okay? This is quite antithetical to the Catholic understanding of God. Um, so I, I think that the fundamental problem with Francis goes really down to his very concept of, of who or what God is. That's quite a radical problem, you know. Um, in someone who, who is being held up as their great leader in faith, and uh, where people who, you know, call themselves Catholics and want to be Catholics are following the spiritual leadership of someone whose very concept of God is not only different from their own, but at variance with the Catholic faith, teaching on God. It's a rather alarming development, right? Yeah. So, uh, and he's now recreating, now he's creating a church called the Synodal Church to actually uh, correspond to his concept of who God is, or should be, as far as he's concerned, so... That's going on uh, starting just about a month, just about a month from now. He's actually going to start the construction of this ark, but it's not going to be an ark unto salvation, that's for sure. Okay. So anyway, we have a lot, lot to pray for. Yep. Well, thank you, as always, for being here tonight. Father, I appreciate your time. Certainly, Tom. Thank you. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.